I want to share with you uh, my new take on, not a new take, my understanding of what God does for mankind. In the beginning, Adam and Eve walking in the garden, and they were told by God, eat of every tree that there is, uh, every tree that there is. You can have of all the fruit, but don't eat of that one. And you know the story how that Adam and Eve did. Eve was beguiled by uh, the serpent, Satan, to eat of the tree, and, and they ate of the tree, and, and then she went and she asked Adam, Adam, eat with me, and he was there, and they both ate of the fruit of knowledge of, uh, tree of knowledge of good and evil. And immediately, the Scripture says in Genesis that they recognized what beforehand they had not recognized because sin had not been a part of their life. They had not disobeyed God. And immediately when they disobeyed, and the Scripture calls it sin after the similitude of Adam, then they became sinful in their awareness of it. And they became aware of their nakedness. They went and they hid themselves. You'll remember that story. They hid themselves among the bushes and they made aprons to try to hide their nakedness of the fig leaves. And, and God comes calling for them because up till that time they had had fellowship with God daily. And, and God comes to commune with them again. And He calls them out and God's not needing to find out where they are. The, uh, the omniscient knew where they were. The omniscient knew what had happened. But he says to them, where are you? And they said, we're hiding because we're naked. And God asked this question to them. Who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat of? In their awareness of their nakedness, God to cover their, uh, their nakedness, their sin, God took the coat of an animal, killed an animal and took the coat of an animal and made for them coverings. It's at that moment that you see that what Hebrews says without the shedding of blood, in Hebrews it says there is no remission. There's no, there's no taking away, covering of sin. God throughout the Old Testament gives these examples of how He intends that, that uh, your, your covering for your sin is going to be because of something giving life. An animal, a sacrifice gives its life for the covering of sin, a momentary covering of sin. Genesis 3.15, when God curses uh, Adam and says, because of your disobedience, you're going to now, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to have to toil the fields. And uh, ladies, you can thank Eve. And because, Eve, of your sin, now there will be chain, pain and childbearing. And uh, to the serpent, he says, no longer will you have legs, but you're going to crawl around on the belly. Uh, and besides that, I'm going to put... Uh, enmity between the seed of the woman Christ and you. And you're going to bruise his heel, a prophetic, but he's going to, and thank God, he's going to crush your head. Israel and their traveling after they come out of the, you'll remember that the, if you're familiar, and most of you I'm assuming are, with their exodus out of captivity in Egypt, the final plague was the, what? Tenth plague. The Passover lamb. And, and God told Moses to go to the people and say, take a lamb without blemish, take the blood of that lamb, put it on the lintels and the doorpost, and then the death angel, when he sees the blood, he will pass over you. They go through their exodus. Israel goes through their exodus. They're out in their wanderings. They start going through and, and quickly forget what they have, but... 
uh, they are fed. They start bellyaching about all we have. We remember all the leaks and we remember everything we had in Egypt and here we have nothing and God sends them first. He sends them manna. But God sent them in manna, He told them, because He still had the uh, seventh day. God rested on the seventh day and it was a day of rest. And God told them when He told Moses, everyone's to go out and they're together for their household, one omer for every person in their household of this... Uh, angel food, this manna from heaven that you're going to find every morning. But because you can't gather and do any work on the sixth day, this, uh, on the Sabbath day, because you can't do anything on that, you may not gather on that, but on Friday, gather an omer and gather another omer, and it will be good on the next day. Some men went and they gathered more and it turned to worms than what they needed for their household. They were just to take the exact amount for their household, an omer for every person in the house. And that that was left at the evening, it turned uh, with canker worms and it molded and it went bad. Some went out and God says in Numbers 16, He says, I'm going to test the people. They are not to go out and they are not to... uh, gather on the Sabbath day. But God says they failed the test and went out and they went to gather manna on the Sabbath day because they were fearful, perhaps, that uh, leaving it to God, He would not be able to take care of them. And a particularly interesting thing happens. God tells Moses to tell Aaron to gather an omer of manna and take it and place it in the ark. Against for a reminder to the generations to come. There's a time then as they go on and they're traveling that a man of the tribe of Korah, his name is Korah, comes to Moses and he basically uh, throws a pity party and he says to Moses, it's not good that you are the leader and Aaron is the one that the priesthood is going to come out of. And basically Korah with his little posse behind him says... We want some of that. This is in Numbers 16 and 17. We want some of this power, Moses, that you and Aaron share. It's not right that y'all have all the power. And God tells Moses to tell Korah, every man bring a rod and place it together, inscribe their name on the rod of the tribe that they're from. But for Aaron, you put Aaron on there. And then the promise was made by God that whichever rod in the morning is budding, that will be indicative of who I choose to be the captain of my priesthood. Korah wanted that. And all these other tribes come in and say, we want some of that power, we want some of that leadership that God's given Moses and Aaron. And God says, here will be the test then. Let's see which rod we... Aaron's rod that budded, you've heard that moniker, right? Aaron's rod that budded. Well, the next morning they awaken, and Aaron's rod is the one that had budded. And God makes this statement. Take Aaron's rod and put it in the Ark of the Covenant as a witness against them. Yearly in Israel, as they were wandering through the wilderness, and they still recognize this today. It comes about September or October yearly, the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is when the high priest would go out and he would go into 
a, uh, the tabernacle and he'd go into the inner dwelling and then he would take a lamb, slay the lamb, would go into the Holy of Holies and he would offer that blood for a covering for his sin. Then he would go out and he would now come back in with another lamb. And he would slay that lamb and take that blood and go and he would go into the Holy of Holies. And it's in, on that day, the Day of Atonement, that God would come down and would fellowship with the high priest, communicate with the high priest as he went into the Holy of Holies. He would sprinkle that blood upon the mercy seat. The mercy seat, indicative of the place where the, God placed it on top of the Ark of the Covenant. In Hebrews... In Hebrews chapter 9, I was reading this just recently, and boy, we got into it at the church and we were talking with it, but Hebrews chapter 9, I'm going to read you this verse, these verses. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 1 says this, Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was a candlestick and the table and the showbread. These are the articles of the tabernacle in the wilderness and what Israel had. And the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, the outer courtyard. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, or the holy of holies. Verse 4, in it, which was the golden censer and the ark of the covenant, Overlaid round about with gold, the Ark of the Covenant, gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, or the Ten Commandments. And so here's, here's my uh, thought process. Yearly, the high priest would go in and he would come to this, this Ark of the Covenant. On top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. On either side of this mercy seat was uh, cherub and seraphim with their wings spread across. He would come in and would pour the blood on top of that mercy seat. And when God saw the blood on top of that mercy seat, he would come in fellowship with the priest. The articles that are inside the Ark of the Covenant. The Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments are included in that what they're intended for is to, all of the law is to show us one thing and one thing only. How short we have come in the expectation of what God demands of people to have fellowship with Him. And so it reveals to us in the New Testament, Paul all the time writes of this. The law reveals our lack, our need, our shortcoming. In fact, Paul says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and done what? Come short of the glory of God. Well, what is it that reveals our sin? It's this list that God gave Moses. And you'll remember as he gave him the first list, he comes down and uh, Moses, after he's been up on the mountain apparently too long, and the people of Israel begin to say, Moses is not coming back, Aaron. Let's take all of our gold and let's create an image like what we saw the Egyptians worship in, in Egypt. Let's make us a golden calf. They make the golden calf, and they begin to dance around naked, worshiping this golden calf, and God is pretty ticked off at this, and Moses comes down and sees it, and he throws that first tablet down, and then God says, I'll make a second tablet, and I want you to take that second tablet and put them in the Ark 
of the covenant. So inside, follow my logic here, inside the Ark of the Covenant, said in Hebrews chapter 9, inside the Ark of the Covenant we have the table, the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments inside, which reveal the shortcoming of man, that we cannot measure up to the perfect standard of God's holiness. And then it has two things. I oftentimes have viewed this and read this as that manna was to be placed into the Ark of the Covenant as a reminder of, and it is, but as a reminder of how good God has been to us. That man, when we were starving, what did he give us? He gave us manna from heaven. And I've, I've heard taught and I've heard preached, and, and, and it is, that Aaron's rod was the rod that Moses threw down in front of Pharaoh, and it became a snake. And Moses and Pharaoh's magicians said, we can do that. And they threw it down. But you know the story of what did Moses' rod that was a serpent do? Yeah, let me eat yours and I'll, we'll see who's the God. It was the rod that Moses parted the Red Sea with. It was the God that, the rod that was uh, symbolic of the power of God. And it was. It was the tool in the hands of Moses and Aaron that God used to demonstrate his power. And so I've often heard taught that the manna and Moses' rod, Aaron's rod that budded, were in there as a reminder of the goodness of God. Your goodness is running after, it's running after me. Man, I'll tell you a little bit about that song. Mitch, thanks for singing that one this morning. That is my cry fest song. Uh, we'll have all of our kids up at Thanksgiving. We'll have them all at Christmas. For whenever everybody's there, and I've got my other daughter and her kids there, and we're all there, and the kids are sitting there, and we're sitting around the fire pit outside, and my son-in-law, Trent, gets his guitar out, and, and they all start singing, I love you, Lord, and uh, all my life you have been faithful. And I'm hearing that, and I'm like, and my wife will just turn and look at me, and by that time, I've got tears just coming down here because I'm keenly aware of the goodness of God in my life. So Israel was keenly aware God provided for us. There were other forms of provision that God had for Israel. Their clothes, the whole wilderness wanderings, never wore out. Their shoes didn't. We know that quail came from heaven. Uh, we know all kinds of things that God did demonstrating His power to them. But on top of that Ark of the Covenant was a mercy seat that was the exact dimensions that mercy seat was of the Ark of the Covenant. You have the Ten Commandments which say you can never measure up to what God expects. You have manna, an omer, an exact omer, and place it in the Ark of the Covenant. Moses gets the word and tells Aaron, take it and put an omer in the Ark of the Covenant. Right after, right after, they went out and failed God's proving them trial of don't gather on the Sabbath. They did gather on the Sabbath. And God says, take an omer and put it in to the Ark of the Covenant. Aaron's rod, 
at a time where God had already said, from the tribe of Aaron, of Levi, will be my priesthood. And Korah rises up and says, I don't want to do it like God wants it. I want some of me in that. I want some of that. And God says, take Aaron's rod that budded as a witness against them and put it in the ark. Do you see that each of those instances that they were told to take it and place it in the ark are all following moments of rebellion. And then you have the mercy seat. And when the blood was poured on the mercy seat, fellowship between the high priest and God happened. In in Hebrews chapter 9 again, if you'll go back there. Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 4. Inside the Holy of Holies, verse 3, verse 4 says, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with the gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables the covenant, which I believe are all indicators as Paul, or I believe Paul, some believe Luke, are writing to these Christian Hebrews. And over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot speak particularly. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone, once every year. Not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. This was he took two lambs. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as yet the first tabernacle was standing, was yet standing. Which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings, and cardinal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. Verse 11. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, now get this, but by His own blood, He entered in once into the holy place. Did you see that word once? High priest went in how many times? Once per year. Continually. Continually. He would go in and and every year, September, October, every year would do this Day of Atonement offering in which blood was covered poured on the mercy seat over what was inside the Ark of Testimony of Promise, the Ark of the Covenant, in which you had three things that is my belief were all indicators of the rebellion of Israel. And on the mercy seat, the blood's poured and God meets with. Go back. 
Verse 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood, He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal... Why did He only have to go in one time? Why did Christ only have to go in one time? It's right there. What did He obtain? Eternal redemption. Where the high priest in Israel's time would go in and would offer that once yearly, it was only good. That redemption, that covering for sins was only good for how long? One year. But Christ goes in, and He goes in as high priest and as final lamb of atonement. And He went in once because what He accomplished was eternal. See it? He entered in once into the holy place, into that place, the Holy of Holies, the high priest would go in into that holy place and once a year pour blood on the mercy seat to cover their sins for that year so that God didn't see their sins, so that God could have fellowship with them because of the covering of the blood. But Christ went in once, entered into once into that holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot, what's that indicating to us of Christ? For He hath made Him who knew no sin, So why could He go in and offer Himself? Because He was blemish-free. He was spotless. And He goes in. So what they're saying here, what the writer is saying is, how much more shall the blood of Christ, if the goats and rams was just good for the flesh, how much more the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered Himself without spot to God, how much more shall it purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So what we see is, what we see is in Christ, we have the perfect Lamb, the final Lamb. Another thing that happened at that time, and and secondary, but perhaps greater, at the Day of Atonement, what also would happen is he would first go out and he would shed, the high priest would shed the blood of an atoning lamb. And that lamb was a covering for the sins that were, that were there, that they had in the Ark of the Covenant, I believe, indicators of man needs somebody because of their rebellion against me. Israel does. They've rebelled. We've all rebelled. And then God would say this, now take, on the same day, take the scapegoat, And take it to the edge of the wilderness. And symbolically, Aaron, symbolically take your hands, place it on the head of the scapegoat, and don't kill it. Say, the sins of Israel, 
put him on the ram, on the scapegoat, and banish it to the wilderness. Banish it out there to where it's sin now for you. Your sins are upon it and it carries them away. Do you remember what John the Baptist said when he saw Christ coming towards him as he is preparing to be baptized? And John the Baptist says of Christ, Behold the Lamb of God. Just stop there. Behold the Lamb of God. All those Israelis standing on the banks of the Jordan would have immediately gone back to, we know what the Lamb of God is. And then he says this, which takes away the sin of the world. And John the Baptist says of Christ, immediately says of Christ, he's the Lamb and he's the scapegoat, all in one. My belief, Christ in the garden praying, if there's any way that we can redeem mankind without me having to become sin, I know that He knew what that cross was going to be. I know that He knew, and it was painful, and I'm not negating that. But understand, this is deity in the flesh. Just a couple of chapters earlier, He, he uh, put the disciples in their place when He said, I go to die. And the disciples said, no, uh-uh, that's not happening. And they rebuked Him. And he says, get thee behind me. The cup that my Father has given me, shall I not drink it? For this very cause came the Son of Man into the world. This is why I'm here, Peter. This is my intent. This is my whole deal. It's my belief that it is the Christ who is going to become the scapegoat in the garden that is saying, Daddy, if there's any way, that we can redeem mankind without me having to become sin. Let's let that happen. No. And He became my sin. Atonement. His blood was a covering for my sin and His death was the uh, transferring of His righteousness to me and Him becoming my sin. We were studying through the book of John. I want you to go to John chapter 20 if you have your Bibles. John chapter 20. One of my favorite uh, commentators is a guy named A.W. Pink. I love A.W. Pink. I love how he writes. I love things that he pulls out. And I have skimmed right by this verse often until this year. In Sunday school, we were going through the Gospel of John. In John chapter 20, go there please. We just came through this season. John chapter 20 verse 1 says, The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark under the sepulchre, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre. Then she runneth. She didn't go in. She just runs and she comes to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have laid Him. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple, and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter. Now, the other disciple is John, who's writing this. I don't know why he had to put in there that I'm faster than Peter, but he put in there I was faster than Peter. Peter was running, and I ran right by him. 
But the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. The linen clothes would have been the clothes white. You remember, now, if you're, if you're going back to that crucifixion day, and Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus say, We've, we can't have him hanging on the cross, we're going to put him in Joseph's tomb, but it's coming to the time that we can't have people hanging on the cross. The high priest and, and the Pharisees did, and so they went through, they killed them all. And when they saw that he was dead, quickly because they could not work on the Sabbath, they took him down and wrapped his body quick in what? The linen cloths. They didn't have time for the proper Jewish burial with the anointing of the spices and the fragrant oils and all. So they were going to do that post-Sabbath day. But the linens were wrapped around him. And so John stoops down and he looks in and he sees the linens laying there. Okay? You with me? And the napkin that was about his head, verse 7, not lying with linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then when, and also that other disciple which came first, again, John's talking about how fast he was, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again under their own home. And you've got resurrection story. But who was the first to the tomb? Mary Magdalene, right? They've gone. John and Peter have gone back to their house. But Mary then stoops in. Mary stood without the sepulcher weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. Follow? You with me? Peter and John have gone running back. She weeping outside because in her mind they've taken our Lord and we don't know where they've taken Him. He's gone. But she weeping stoops down and she peers into the tomb. And she sees, verse 12, you there? And seeth two angels in white sitting. And then I want you to look at the very next phrase. The one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Now if you've got your Bibles, go back to Exodus chapter 25. We're nearly done. Exodus chapter 25. Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in and he would offer the Lamb's blood. Right? On the mercy seat. The mercy seat which covered the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant which held the tables of stone which revealed the shortcoming of man. Which held the omer of manna which was indicative of the time that Israel went out and they did more than they were supposed to. And Aaron's rod that budded that was the uh, token of when the tribes rose up and said, we don't want it like God wants it, we want it to do it our way. Rebellion, rebellion, our lack of ability to come up and measure to God. The mercy seat, and on the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat between, read with me. 
And thou, verse 17 of chapter 25, Exodus chapter 25. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half of the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold. Of beaten work shalt thou make them. Where? In the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub on the one end and the other cherub on the other end, even of the mercy seat, shall ye make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. What did we just see when Mary stooped into the tomb? Angels on each end. And John recorded specifically, not that she just saw two angels, but she sees one angel sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where what? Where Jesus had lain. He comes off the cross as what? Atoning lamb. In the haste to wrap his body, blood would have been seeping. Right? And she looks in and sees in the place where our final, which in Hebrews it says, once because He purchased eternal redemption, one time, the last time, for mankind to now be put in a place to where I can walk and have fellowship with God, all accomplished in the finished work of the cross of Jesus. You see that? And we skip right by and she looks in and she sees an angel on one end and an angel on the other. But that, my picture, is that is the final mercy seat. Final. To where Jimbo, in his rebellion... I'm covered by that place where Jesus had lain. I was reading this week, and I'm going to read it to you now, if I can find it. Oh, honey. There it is. I did this song with my youth choir way while back. I'll read to you the lyrics. In the Holy of Holies, behind the heavy veil, set the Ark of the Covenant where the Most High dwelt. And only the high priest could enter therein to offer up a sacrifice for atonement for sin. But the veil was rent in an instant. When? When he said, it is what? And the, t- the veil rent from top to bottom exposing that place where the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat was, no longer veiled from only the high priest getting in, but the veil was rent in an instant revealing that holy place. For on a hill nearby, on a rugged cross, get this, justice met grace. Now I can go into the Holy of Holies. I can kneel and make my petitions known. 
I can go into the Holy of Holies, and although I'm just a common man, I'm not a high priest, I'm just a common man, because of God's redemption plan, I can boldly approach the throne. The blood of sacrifices is no more required. For the blood of Christ, the spotless Lamb, completely paid the price. Now in the sacrifice of worship, we'll open heaven's doors, allowing us to enter in the presence of the Lord. And then it says, now I can go into the Holy of Holies. I can kneel and make my petitions known. I can go into the Holy of Holies. And although I'm just a common man, because of God's redemption plan, I can boldly approach the throne. The finished work of Christ was this. The finished work of Christ was this. He was my atoning lamb. He was my scapegoat. And because of that, I now, for 54 years, have been in fellowship with God. Four-year-old boy came to that beautiful understanding of what God is and what Christ was to me. And knowing that it was far more than just, I don't want to go to hell, but it was, I want to be in relationship with God, but my sin was in that ark, my rebellion. And God in His rich mercy toward us covered that failures of me, covered the failures of you with the blood of the final lamb. And this year at Easter, that took on new significance when I read at either end of the place where Christ had laid was an angel. And immediately, my mind went back to seraphim and cherub on either side of the mercy seat that covered the Ark of the Covenant. And this morning, I thank God that it's a finished work. I thank God that it wasn't something that has to be done yearly. However, I know a lot of people that went through their whole youth group experience doing it yearly. You've seen that before? Just uh, It seems like secondary and third and fourth and fifth salvation experiences just because maybe they backslidden or something like that. It was a finished work. He purchased my covering by His, it says in Hebrews, His perfect blood. Eternal once. No longer do we need anything else because of Christ. I know most of you in here, I was a four-year-old kid. Four years old. Saturday morning, I don't know when, I don't know if it was winter, I don't know if it was summer. I know Scooby-Doo was on. (laughs) And at the moment, God got me. I went running to my mom who was cleaning the bathrooms. And I said, Mama, I've got to get saved. And she said, okay, why? And she, she asked me the question, I said, because I am apart from God. And my mom used the bathtub for my altar to kneel at. Thank God she didn't say, let's kneel at the toilet right here. (laughs) That would have been bad. Use the bathtub. 
And that was the place at 401 West Street in Arlington, Texas, right by UTA, University of Texas at Arlington. A four-year-old kid settled my atonement. And I have been at one with him 54 years. I'd love to say that I have been free from failing him for 54 years, but that's not the case. I can affirmingly say to you, for 54 years, he's never failed me. His mercy is running after, running after me. And he's good when I don't deserve. Even in him becoming my sin, he was good when I didn't deserve. Why? Not because of me. But he wants fellowship with humanity. But that fellowship had to be perfectly covered once and for all. And it was Christ that did it. I don't know about you, but that brings new merit to the finished work of what Christ did. It wasn't just a fire escape out of hell for me. Uh, It wasn't just, I don't want to go to hell, so I'll say a sinner's prayer. It was, I want to see Him. I want fellowship with Him. I want proper relationship with Him. Even as a four-year-old. I don't get that. But I knew it. Never once have I doubted my salvation experience because it was real. I'll tell you this. My mom, who led me at four years old, got saved sometime later. Because and we just had dinner with her this week and she says, I never realized that I was lost. I went down as a child and went down and just said, yeah, you know, I could never get, I, I just, my friend was going down and I went down and I never realized, now here's what mom was saying. I never realized, I said a prayer, but she says, I never realized I was lost. I was sinful. What'd she say? I never realized I had anything that I needed His blood to cover. I never realized that. And at age, what'd she say? 30, 31, 32. My mom gets truly, truly redeemed. And she says, it was all when I realized that I wasn't just trying to get out of hell, but I was trying to get into God. That that made the difference for me. So I don't know you. Man, I hope everybody here knows Christ. I hope everybody here is trusting not in works. I hope you're trusting not in just, I don't want to go to heaven. So, I mean, I don't want to go to hell, so I said a prayer. I hope that what you're trusting is, and I hope what you've seen is, we are in rebellion Mankind is born into rebellion. We don't have to be taught that. This little one down here, he didn't have to be taught how to say no when we're saying do this, no. No, he knows that. We're just born that way. We're born rebellious, and God says, my son has covered that if you'll receive it. If you can see Him for who He is.
covered. That brings peace. Peace.